You know, when the uh, church year started this, this past year, um, we never dreamed as a church that, you know, I would be battling cancer and, and being gone for eight plus weeks. And um, I just so appreciate everyone who stepped up and has fulfilled rule, roles and duties and responsibilities in my absence. And uh, so I've been kind of stepping back, you know, when God puts you on your back, you have a lot of time to think and pray and ponder and consider. And so, you know, God's done a, a deep dive in my, my own life personally, but also concerning our church. So I want to share this message today, just kind of set a, a basis or an outline um, there are some things that um, I think that in our church that some strategies that we need to uh, reconsider and uh, recalibrate in order to address uh, the issues that are not only facing the lives of those of us here, uh, but also the lives of those of us, those who are not here. So I always take my cue from Jesus because he is the best example of growing something that he established, right? He said, I will build my church. So it's Jesus who does the building. So when you look at the life of Christ in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, right out of the gate it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and men. And the way that Jesus grew in his humanity is that he put into place in his life what we call spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines that enabled him to grow in that, that relationship uh, with his heavenly father, yes, Jesus was fully God as he was fully man, but there, he, he established for us and showed us what it means to walk with our heavenly father. And, you know, prayer was very important in his life. Fasting was very important in his life. He, you know, every Sunday, Saturday there for them, uh, you would find him in synagogue or at the temple. Uh, there are a lot of things that Jesus incorporated in his day in and day out life that helped him to grow in wisdom and stature and favor of God and men. And then when it was time for Jesus to step out and to begin what he came to do, and that was to, to die for the sins of humanity, uh, Jesus began calling individuals to himself and saying, follow me. And he went to fishermen and people from his disciples from all walks of life and says, I want you to follow me because I'm going to make you fishers of men. And there came a point in time in his walk and relationship with his disciples in which Jesus says, listen, guys, um, I, I'm going to build my church. And so he it was going to build an organization. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. We are an organization. And Jesus, from then on, began to clarify his purpose. And he says um, things like, he asked the, his disciples in here in Matthew chapter 16, well, who do people say that I am? And, of course, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the other prophets. And then Jesus really narrowed it down, and he says, now, who do you say that I am? And, of course, remember, Peter spoke up and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus acknowledged the fact that this um, knowledge of Jesus as Christ was not something that Peter dreamt up. It was something that God the Father gave to him. And so from then on, Jesus began to lay out his plan and his strategy. It says in 1621, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And so he established a strategy. 
and he began preparing his disciples to carry on the work that he was establishing prior to his ascension back into heaven. And you recall that Jesus um, said, okay, guys, here's the plan, but you got to work the plan, right? So if a church is going to survive, if a church is going to thrive, you ha- it takes work, right? You have to work the plan. You can't just be hearers of the word. We have to be doers of the word. And so, you know, he got them up from time to time, sent them out two by two and said, here's what I want you to take with you. I want you to go and I want you to go to every home. And if, if they welcome you, great. If they don't, shake the dust off your feet, keep moving on. He would, he would send them out on like fishing expeditions and then he would gather them back up and he'd say, okay, what went right? What went wrong? Uh, why do you think that was? Why did you think that happened or it didn't happen? And so Jesus was constantly honing the skills and the abilities and the giftedness of his disciples to carry on his mission and accomplish um, what the early church needed to accomplish. But they could not accomplish Jesus' mission without having a mission, right? Having a vision, a mission, a strategy, the work by which they were going to do this and how they're going to evaluate what they were doing and where, where do they need to retool and to step back and say, hey, we, we need to change some things because this happened in the early church. As the church began to grow and explode and more and more people are coming in, needs were brought into the church, and they weren't able to meet all the needs, and they had to figure out ways that they could do that. And so I want us to just kind of step back uh, this morning and say, what is our vision? What is our mission? What is our strategy? Why, why is the church, the local church, so important? And why is it important for you to be not just a member of a church, but to be involved and engaged in the church that you are a member of? So we say that First Baptist Church is committed to helping people take their next step with God. Everybody has a next step. You, you live around, you work with, you come across people who may be really far from God, don't want anything to do with Him, they've been hurt, uh, they've been jilted, they, don't, you know, God, they, they might be atheistic, whatever is in their minds, or they might be that they're like really close to crossing the line of faith and everything in between. And so they're in the, what I call the exploring stage, and they've got a lot of questions and uh, the question is, do we have the answers for the questions they're asking? Because the questions that people are asking right now are very, very important to the success of us fulfilling the mission of Christ. And then our mission is, how do you, how do you fulfill the vision? And so the mission of our church is to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ through real relationships reaching. Now, the key there is fully devoted, not just a part-time follower of Jesus, not just a sideline kind of thing, but how do, how do we bring people to the place that they're absolutely committed to being a fully devoted follower of Christ? And we narrowed it down and just said, you know, real love for Christ, relationship with others, and reaching out. In other words, this is a faith walk. All of our relationships that we have with God is about walking in faith. It's about trusting Him. It's about building a relationship of intentionality. It's about building a relationship of confidence and trust so that no matter what I face in life, no matter what valley you might be in or what mountaintop you might be experiencing and everything in between, you are fully equipped to handle those things because you are a devoted follower 
of Jesus. And Jesus is working some things in you that he's going to work through you as he equips you to handle what it is he's going to ask you to do. I just believe that Jesus still expects followers of his to live in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit over the demonic realm and power in this, that's unleashed upon this world. Now, what I don't mean by that is, I, I'm not saying, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to slay somebody. I'm, I'm saying is, we have the truth of God's word. God's kingdom is built on truth. Satan's kingdom is built on lies. We are the carriers of truth, and we can confront the lies of the evil one, and we know that lies cannot stand up against the truth. That darkness must flee when it's brought into the presence of light. And so I just believe that God's word is still just as powerful today as it was in the day that it was written. That the things that God did back in the New Testament are still the things that God is ready and willing to do here in our present day. We are to be proclaimers of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is present and its future. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God over our hearts and our lives. And the future kingdom is when Jesus comes back to establish his physical kingdom here on earth. And there's just, just a lot of things that we um, are confronted with in our day and time when it comes to truth versus lies. Truth is timeless. You know, I hear people say, well, you know, the Bible was written so long ago, and it's really not relevant for our day and time, and, you know, we've got this, this, and this, and this condition, and this uh, complexity, and, and, you know, they didn't get it back then. Let me tell you, God gets it because God is the creator. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of every single human being. He is the creator of truth. Jesus came as God's created being, not created in that he didn't have his existence beginning on earth. John started his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the one who is full of grace and truth. I still believe that Jesus has the ability to save people from their sins that he has the ability to transform their hearts and lives as new creations in Christ. I have a firm believer that God can take a person who has been hurt so deeply and so vigorously that God can bring healing back into their, their soul that has been ravaged by either their own sins or the sins of others upon them. I believe that the power of the gospel still is just that, extremely extremely powerful and so what is timeless and what is truthful is found inside of God's word and so we choose to live by it and as the organization we are the dispensers of that truth we are the carriers of the truth it's why we carry our bibles right whether you got your bible on your phone or you're carrying an apps you know a, a physical copy of God's word you have God's truth and God's truth intersects and answers everything, every complexity, every situation, every circumstance that every human being is facing in this day and time. God has an answer for it. I didn't say it's an easy, always an easy answer or an easy road. I'm just simply saying 
that God has the power to transform people's lives. That's the truth that we carry. That's the truth that the disciples carried when Jesus ascended back up into heaven and he said, listen, I want you to wait in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. He is the power source. He is going to bring to your heart and to your mind everything you need to say and do in face of what it is that I'm putting you, a situation I'm putting you in, a circumstance. You can't do this on your own. It's beyond your ability, but I'm going to indwell you and I'm going to gift you and I'm going to give you abilities and experiences and I'm going to help you to turn the world upside down. And somehow, somewhere, we've forgotten that. Over 4,500 churches every, every single year in the United States close their doors for good. As I said, we are on a steep decline. And it's estimated that within the next 20 to 25 years, we will look like Europe, where you have a few churches dotted here and there, but by and large, we have become a, a pagan kind of a culture. Jesus established the church because it's through the church that he has decided to change the world. So let me just kind of flesh out these five reasons why you need to be in a church family, why you need a church, why the church needs you, just to kind of help us reorient ourselves. So go back to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Peter has preached over 3,000 people, you know, they've given their life to Christ, and God has given birth to the church as he said he would. Now obviously with that many people, plus you've got women and children, that might just be counting the men. Uh, we, it is estimated that in the first few years of the early church, it probably swelled to over 20, 30. Some estimations go up even to uh, almost 100,000 people. And that is you know, exponential church growth. I get that, understand that. But here's how they started out. Listen to what it says, because it really gives us our five reasons why we, we need to gather together and why we need to share with one another and, and be engaged with one another. It says in verse 42 of Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here's the first reason why we need a church family, why we need each other to help one another, and that is we need help in centering our lives around God in worship and centering our lives around God in worship. you notice that they, they met in homes at times, they, they worshipped in the temple courts, but worship was very much a part of their Jewish heritage and culture. It was very much a part of the life of Jesus. It was very much a part of the life of those early believers and the church that Jesus established. Now, when I say worship, what is, what is it that comes to your mind, right? Well, we're here in a worship service, uh, praying, fasting, singing. There are a lot of things that come to our mind that are, that are really expressions of worship. But when you look at the word worship itself, it, it literally means to, to ascribe God his worth. 
And so when Jesus asked, was asked, what is the greatest commandment that God has given? If you were to narrow it all down in the Old Testament, he said, now, the greatest commandment above all is to first love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your, your strength. In other words, God made you to love you, and he made you to love him. And so the essence of worship is that I'm centering and I'm building my life around God. That God is at the center of and the core of my being. This is the way God designed you. The Bible says you are spirit, soul, and body, not the other way around. The spirit, the spirit of God who dwells you as a follower of Jesus Christ, your body's become a temple of the Holy Spirit, is to live itself out through your soul, your mind, will, and emotions, and then out through your body, how we conduct ourselves with each other, right? So the spirit is to be at the center, at the core, at the hub of my heart. He's not to be an addendum. He's not to be just a slice of the pie. God is to be the hub of our lives, and everything else is a spoke to that, that hub. And so God gave a visual reminder to the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament when they had the tabernacle, that movement, you know, movable entity of God, uh, that they would set up the tabernacle as they were wandering through the wilderness, and you have the Holy of Holies where God's presence is dwelling. And when the, the, you know, when the Spirit stopped with pillar fire or cloud, and says, okay, we're camping here. What did the 12 tribes of Israel do? They, they put the tabernacle in the center of them. They pitched their tents around the tabernacle, facing the tabernacle. It was a visual reminder by their creator that I am to always be at the center and at the core of your being. This is how I created you. This is what I created you for. God didn't put you on the planet to live a self-centered life. His purpose for you is to build your life with him, and he put you here for his benefit. In other words, you exist for God, not the other way around. And sometimes we flip that script if you listen to our prayers, and we pray prayers and we are putting demands on God and expectations on God as though God existed for us rather than the other way around. And then when God doesn't live up to our expectations, now we're disappointed in him, and, and then in our disappointment, we, we get frustrated and we get angry and we get resentful, and it just turns out to be a mess. When we have to keep ourselves oriented, in other words, God says, I want to be the hub of your heart, the focus of your attention, the center of your life, the axis of your existence. Everything flows out of that relationship. So that, listen, if you're growing in your worship, if you're growing in this relationship with your heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, then when you hit your deep, dark valleys, you are equipped in a way that you would have never been equipped had you not kept God at the center of your life. How do you know if God's at the center? Well, how many of you have a check engine light on your car? If that thing goes off, what do you do? Do what I do. I just ignore it. All right? I just ignore it. Or, or if you get tired of looking at that little light, you just put a piece of duct tape over it. That'll just cover it up. All right? So, the, the, listen, God gives us a warning that he's no longer at the center, and here it is. It's called worry. It's called worry. 
you can either worship a lot and worry less or worry a lot and worship less. Because when you are in this walk with God, and I'm not saying that, you know, we're not, you know, caught off guard sometimes and we're not taken back and that we don't cry and we don't, you know, ask questions and, you know, like David in the Psalms that sometimes we're just questioning God. But if you read the Psalms, David always came out on the other side, what? Worshiping. And so he worshiped God because he knew the God that he worshiped had the ability to care for him and to do anything that needed to be done in order to bring David to the place he needed to be. And so we are always either worshiping or we are worrying. Those are our two only um, options that we have. So when you come to the New Testament and Paul comes along and says, hey, do not be anxious about anything, but everything but by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the God of all peace, right? God will, he will sustain you with his peace. He will guard your heart and your mind with his peace. That word prayer is really the word for worship. And what Paul is saying is that when God's at the hub of you and the center of your, your existence and your being and everything flows out of that relationship that when you are put in a situation that can create all kinds of anxiety within you, you immediately go to your place of worship and you're petitioning God and with thanksgiving and you're trusting in God and as you're trusting in him, all of a sudden, God just floods your heart with his peace that surpasses all human understanding that guards your heart and your mind. This is why Jesus says, why are you worried about what you're going to eat? Why are you worried about what you're going to wear? If you will seek first the kingdom, the rule and the reign of God in your life and worshiping him, he will add all these things unto you. I spoke on the phone with a, with a gentleman who's my age, actually, and he has bladder cancer. And uh, did not get a real good report, or didn't think he was going to get a really good report. And, and just, so I reached out to him and just sharing with him and talking to him. And he said, you know, um, Pastor, he said, I... I was in church um, last week, and he said, I was really, really worried. He was about to get a really bad report. Um, he's been battling, really, bladder cancer longer than I have. And um, he said, you know, they, 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 I went up front, and they, they just laid hands on me, and they prayed over me. And he said, the pastor says, do you, do you feel any different? And he says, no, I, I don't feel any different. And and." So, you know, they, they prayed a little bit, and he, he said, the church was over. He says, my wife and I, we walked out the doors under the parking lot, and he says, the minute I hit the parking lot, he said, the hair on my arms and the back of my neck stood straight up, and God just flooded me with a peace. He says, I am not scared anymore. No matter what happens, I'm not afraid anymore. And th this is what God wants to do, and this is why we worship I mean, sometimes when we think about worship, it's just, well, let's, we'll come, we'll sing some songs, and let's make it more than that, right? We, we want to come with an expectation that God wants to move, that God wants to, to bring hope back into our lives, and he wants to bring healing where healing is needed, and he wants to encourage us, and, and he wants to, you know, lift us up and prepare us for the world in which we live, and the, where we go to work, and where we go to school, and the neighborhoods that we live in, the people that we come into contact with. We have this opportunity, and so in Acts, worship 
was important. It's important to them. It was important to us. It was important to Jesus. It is important to us. And people, you know, sometimes we get all caught up in worship styles. And there was such a, you know, an out, uh, I don't know, kind of an outrage for several years. Churches trying to transition in worship styles. And, you know, had the worship wars going on. Are we going to have a contemporary service or a traditional service? And, and on and on it went. And I, you know, that was just like, oh, why are we warring over worship? Because worship, the essence of worship, you can worship at your house, you can worship in your car, you can, this is a building, this, this is not, this is, this is a building that houses the church. The church is to come collectively together in order to worship. We thank God for our praise team who leads us every Sunday in worship that helps us connect our hearts with God and express ourselves to our Heavenly Father in ways uh, that maybe we, we have never thought of before. And like the third song we sang, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm standing here crying like a baby, which, stop doing that to me, please. And before I have to get up and preach, it's like, oh. But, it, but it's such a, a, just a tremendous act of worship and connecting with my Heavenly Father. See, if you worship God every single day in your lives, whatever's time you set aside, then when you come to Sundays, you're just worshiping out of the overflow. So we don't have to try to pump you up emotionally, and we don't have to try to pull you up. I mean, you may come in here, and you've been beaten up all week long, and you might be an emotional wreck. That is fine and well, because we want to help bring you up and bring you into contact with your Heavenly Father who loves you incredibly. It just does. Number two, we want to help you connect with other believers through fellowship. There again, that, there's that word fellowship. When we hear the word fellowship, what do we think about? Casserole dish. <laughs> we're having a fellowship today. Everybody brings something, right? So we're going to get out to the activity center and we're going to eat together. And that is a part of fellowship. Or we think of fellowship in terms of, well, hey, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Great. And then we leave and I'll see you next week. That's really not the essence of fellowship as far as the scripture is concerned. It goes much, much deeper than that. God wants us to go deep with one another because we need one another. That's why uh, the Bible likens the body of Christ like a physical body. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The head can't say to the heart, I don't need you. We need each other because collectively together we bring to the table something we do not have. It's just like marriage, you know. My wife is not like me, and I'm not like her, but when you put us together, the two halves make a whole. If we were like each other, one of us would not be needed. In the body of Christ, God has so designed it. He's given you spiritual gifts and talents and abilities and experiences, and when he collectively pulls all of that together, it makes for a very powerful entity in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And so we learn to go deeper with one another. Now, uh, when we talk about going deeper with one another, I mean, yeah, friendships are great, but friendships can be very surface, right? Like, yeah, I, I don't know how many people I've got, you know, friends on Facebook. Now, they are, you know, I, they've been friends in the past, some of them, you know, past members of some churches I pastored, and, uh, you know, but I don't see them on a regular basis. I don't talk to them on a regular basis. You know, we have friendships, acquaintances. But what God wants to do is for the body of Christ to go so much deeper than that so that we are really sharing our lives and we're sharing our hearts with one another. And one of the reasons we don't do that, and I understand this, I am by nature, you know, an introvert. And when I first came into church and I was first thrust into a youth group and I was sat in a circle, my very first night there was on a Wednesday night. They sat us all in a great big circle and they go, hey, we're going to have prayer tonight. 
and we're going to hold hands, and when you're done praying, you squeeze the hand of the person next to you, and they pray, and we're going to go around this circle. I never prayed for in my life. I was a nervous wreck. I was sweating beads. I'm like, what in the world do I say? I don't even know what to say. So I just kind of listened to what everybody else was saying and kind of, you know, mimicked a little bit of what they said and, you know, squeezed the hand of the person next to you. Of course, you always want to be careful not to get to the next person next to you who prays intently because the more intense they become, the harder they squeeze your hand and, you know, and then it just gets real uncomfortable. So I, I, I didn't want to share my my hurts and my, you know, at that time as a teenager, I was struggling with life. I was struggling even wanting to stay alive. And so, you know, God broke through that hesitancy of mine. God has designed the church that we help one another, that we are, listen, God said in the book of James, if you want to receive healing, get it out on the table, Your, your sins, your secrets, the things that are holding you back, Get it out on the table. Find somebody. Build a friendship. Build a relationship. Whether in a small group or with a, you know, two other people or one other person, you've got to get it out and deal with the issues of your life if you want to experience the healing of Christ in your life. And when you experience that healing, man, it is incredible what God does because you are willing just to offload that stuff out of your heart. But if you've ever been burned by somebody, that becomes a little more difficult, right? All of a sudden, you become the prayer request. Hey, you know, pastor told me this about himself, and uh, I think we need to be praying for him. Let me, let me tell you what it is. <laughs> Listen, in heaven, we are going to love God, and we're going to love one another, and we've got to learn how to do that down here. Amen? Nothing brings a parent greater joy than watching their kids get along. I know it's a rare moment, but sometimes they get along. Our kids, when they wouldn't, weren't getting along, our two daughters, I'd make them sit on the couch and hold hands. They hated that. Absolutely hated it. And then there comes sharing, right? You're sharing. Henry Cloud, psychologist Henry Cloud, if you never uh, read any of his books, you need to, especially Boundaries. Boundaries is all about relationships, building boundaries and relationships. You need to read that book. Um, Henry Cloud was wrestling with depression at one time in his life, and he was asking God to heal him of his depression. He thought, in his mind, that God's going to send this, you know, this centrifugal force that's just going to come upon him and going to lift off the depression, and and that was God's plan A, and it's going to be something spontaneous and instantaneous and showy, and God's going to, you know, declare himself, and, and it just didn't happen. But what God did do is he brought some people into his life, and they invited them into their small group and to their community, and they just loved on him, and they cared for him, and and as he shared what was going on in his heart and his life, and they gave him support and spoke back truthfulness to him, he said, reflecting afterwards, he said, I realized that the special effects route was not God's plan A. God's plan A was to use people. And the other might be plan B, but plan A was he used people in my life as I went deeper in fellowship with them to help bring hope and healing back into my ravaged soul that was despairing and filled with this depression. Believe me, I know the truth about suffering and pain, and I know what God says about it. You know, when I was going through my, my chemo and all that stuff, I, I understand God's truth. I know God's truth. I could quote you all kinds of scriptures. But what was helpful in, in my process, right? You guys, right? People who were 
encouraging me and texting me and calling me and sending me cards and helping me out. You know, Paula here, she's, I know, you know, Paula, she, Paula's a retired nurse. Paula was my nurse. She saw me at my worst and at my best. And even after my surgery, I'd take shots once a day for 30 days. She came over and gladly gave me those shots. I think it was a little sadistic. And that when she just walks by and like, <clears throat> she didn't do it. See, we, we need one another. We, we, that's what fellowship, true, authentic fellowship is really all about. You know, most architects currently design our homes intentionally that promotes, not, it promotes privacy and seclusion. Like we were walking our neighborhood and there's building a new addition on our neighborhood and, and nobody has porches anymore. When I grew up, everybody had big porch, front porches, you know, so everybody gathered out on their front porch and before you know, the kids are playing in the front yard and everybody's gathered on one front porch and they're sharing a meal and this and that and the other. You don't have that anymore. What do we have? We have no front porches. We have garage door openers. We have privacy fences. We, are, we have developed a society of seclusion because like most of us, you get off from a long day's work. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to interact with anybody. You just want to hit your garage door opener, go in, park your garage, car, close the garage, and stay inside your house, stay in your seclusion of your backyard, on your deck, in your privacy fence. And, and it's just, there's no fellowship going on among neighbors hardly anymore unless you become really intentional about making that happen. And it's sad. Because we had some great, great times as, as neighbors, uh, just, you know, things that happened spontaneously. And so when you have few relationships, there are maladies that come with that. You lose perspective in life. You fear intimacy. You get dis, the more disconnected you become from people, the more selfish you become. It's just like if I'm home alone, and, and you know, like on Thursdays, Marla works late. She works till 7 o'clock. So I, you know, I'm home for dinner you know, by myself. And her words before she leaves that, don't you, don't, you make sure you fix yourself a good meal, right? Don't eat crap. Don't make your two food groups Krispy Kreme donuts and Twinkies, okay? It's just not going to happen. So, and we just don't, we don't, we don't take care of ourselves as well, and it, it affects us mentally and emotionally and spiritually when we become secluded from others, and I know that you, like me, if you're an introvert, it's a little more harder to put, you, put yourself out there, but I'm telling you, if you will do it, if you will do it, it will greatly help you in your walk and relationship with the Lord. I got to move on. Number three, it helps to cultivate spiritual maturity, cultivate spiritual maturity through discipleship. I mean, it says they met in homes and they, they you know, fellowshipping around and breaking bread and listening to the, the teachings and, uh, of the apostles and, you know, all these believers are coming together and they, uh, they're in the courts and, you know, they're just praising God together. And it, it's a time of discipleship. The word discipleship simply means to grow up, right? It's a process of growing in spiritual maturity. That's part of my job is to help you grow in spiritual maturity, right? Is to equip you uh, for the works of the ministry, but also to help you grow in your spiritual maturity. Uh, discipleship is, is something, though, that goes even deeper than that. Discipleship is where you, you might take a person one-on-one -on -one and help them go deeper in their walk with Jesus. A discipleship might be that you take two people or a triad of people or a small group of people, and you're helping them to grow intentionally. You're helping them to develop spiritual disciplines, excuse me, that helps them go deeper in their walk with God 
And that's the intent behind discipleship. You want people to grow and to mature in their walk with the Lord. And it takes somebody helping you do that, right? So, like, you know, when an infant is born, like a baby is born, you don't bring it home and say, there's the kitchen, there's the refrigerator, you know, fend for yourself, there's your bedroom, right? It takes somebody walking, physically picking them up, caring for their needs, and, and spending a lot of time and a lot of attention, and, and it just seems like it's redundant because all they do is eat, cry, and poop. I mean, it's just like the cycle, the vicious cycle that goes on. And then they start, you know, growing and maturing, and then they start doing for themselves, and, and you know, then they, they grow into adolescence where they lose their mind. I get that. And, and then it comes back in their 20s, and they go into adulthood, and have their own families, and reproduce. So that's the concept that the Bible gives to us about discipleship. It's about, it's about helping people in their infancy, help them grow in that walk, in that relationship, so they go deeper and deeper in the Lord, so that now, watch this, they learn how to feed themselves. They learn how to walk on their own so that they can now in turn on the flip side help somebody else who's in their spiritual infancy to grow and mature and to walk on their own. This is why Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It is a multiplication system. And it's sometimes it's, it's lacking in churches. And maybe you're that person, man. You're, you're available and, and God has just kind of laid somebody upon your heart and you may have to enter into a, a conversation. Oftentimes when you, you go to disciple somebody, it might just be a, a simple thing of saying, hey, how would you like to get together uh, once a week or once every other week for an hour and we're just going to study the Bible together? All right? It's as simple as that. Now here's the pushback by most believers. Well, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to disciple anybody. I don't know what to show them. I don't know what to teach them. The Bible? <laughs> do, you replicate what you are, right? This is what Jesus did. Hey, guys, watch me. Watch me. Now let's do it together. Now I'm going to send you out on your own. Let's report back and tell me what went right and what went wrong. Until then they were doing it on their own and they were making their own disciples. That's the reproducing process that Jesus gave to us. And so, you know, you pray, well, then you can teach somebody how to pray. You read God's Word, you can teach them how to read God's Word. There's all kinds of things. You don't have to have a degree in discipleship. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You teach them what you know, and you help to make a disciple of them. And when they get to the place where in their spiritual maturity, they have reached your level, and they want to go to another level, then they'll find somebody who gets them to that next level. That was me all throughout my life. It's like, okay, God always supplied me with a man who helped me from the beginning, take me to a certain level, then he would send me somebody else. And take me to the next level, send me somebody else. Take me to the next level so that you're continually growing and maturing in your own walk that you can pass that on to others. Here's number four, to help prepare you to contribute something back through ministry. Ministry is not only what I do. Every single one of you are ministers of Jesus Christ. God's gifted you. He's given you talents, abilities. We'll talk about this when we hit Romans 12 uh, because there Paul talks about spiritual gifts. We're going to camp out there for a little while. And I'm going to talk about the spiritual gifts, about your shape, your spiritual gift, your heart, ability, personality, and experiences. 
good, painful, and otherwise, how God has uniquely shaped you for ministry. Every single one of you is needed in ministry. Every one of you is needed, and you can contribute in ways that no one else. Listen, and here's what God's going to do. He's going to stretch your faith. Let me give one example, and we'll we'll wrap this up. Um, I was going to have to turn there. We don't have time. Matthew 16. John the Baptist is in prison. Um, He's been using um, King Herod and his wife Herodias, which was an illegitimate marriage as a sermon illustration one too many times. So they, you know, Herodias had him thrown in prison. John the Baptist loses his head. Uh, He is beheaded. And uh, so Jesus is in mourning. He goes in the mountain, he's praying, he's just kind of pouring out his heart. His disciples find him and say, hey, Jesus, there are people down here who need you. Jesus comes off the mountain, he comes down there, he's teaching people, he's healing people, he's interacting with people, and it's getting late into the evening, and they've got no food, and there's nowhere place close to get anything, and his disciples come to him, and they say, hey, Jesus, uh, we need to send these people away so they can go get something to eat, because we're out here in no man's land, and there's nothing to eat here. And what did Jesus say to them? You feed them. What? So they start scouring the crowd. There's 5,000 men, plus women and children, scouring the crowd. They find one little kid that's got some sardines and some you know, little loaves of bread, and they, they bring it to Jesus, finally. But here's the first thing. The first thing they said to Jesus, I love their response. They bring the, they said, Lord, we can't do this. We've only got two little sardines and five little barley loaves. When Jesus told them to feed the 5,000, he wasn't kidding. And so the disciples do exactly what we do. When God asks us to do something, we make excuses and we focus on our limitations. We can't do it, Lord. Why? Because we're limited here. We only got two sardines and five little barley loaves. What did Jesus say? Give them to me. And he gave them to him. He prayed over them. He handed them back to his disciples and said, now go feed the 5,000. I don't care how limited you might think you are. I don't care how scarce your resources might be. If you put it in the hands of Jesus, he can multiply it, and he can more than make up for what you are lacking as an individual and as a church. We never want to say, well, Lord, we would do this, but we have such limited resources, and we are so limited in this and so limited to that. Otherwise, Lord, we, we do it, man. We'd step out on faith. And God's saying, step out on faith, and then I'll supply you with what you need. And that's exactly what happened. They, they handed enough food to feed everybody that was there and had 12 basketfuls left over. And I love the fact that Jesus chucked them in the, in the boat with them when they went across the Sea of Galilee to give them another object lesson. So... Ministry is important. It's, it's what we do. You know, most of you watched, stayed up and watched the Buckeyes last night. I know you did. And uh, I know you're going to stay up Monday night and watch Cowboys. So, 
There's 22 two guys on the field who are in desperate need of rest, 90,000 people in the stands who need exercise. This is what happens in churches. A small few group of people are doing 80% of the work. It's the Preto principle, the 80 20%. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That should never be in the church of Jesus Christ. God has given all of us gifts, talents, and abilities and has shaped us and equipped us to do what it is. It is going to stretch your faith. It is going to challenge you. It's going to be frustrating at times. You're going to want to throw in the towel. You're going to want to give up. I can't tell you how many resignation letters I've written over my lifetime in pastoring, but it's been a bunch. But it's needed. Number five, help communicate God's love through outreach. The greatest thing for outreach is this. I won't have Terry pass out these dimes. Uh, so, Terry, are you in here? There he is. He's going to pass out and give you an offering plate, take a dime, and you can write this down as, as he's passing that out. I'm closing with this illustration. When it comes to outreach, we use the word splash. It simply means show people love and share him. All right? The way you enter into a person's heart is by showing them love. I didn't say, I didn't ask if they deserved it or if they earned it or if they, you know, what it doesn't matter. We show people love and we share Christ. It's not enough just to show people love. You know, you can feed people all of their lives. If you don't give them Jesus, what happens at the end of their life? All right, they're not innocent in God's eyes, so they're going to spend eternity separated from the Lord. So we have to we have to incorporate sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you make entrance, you make roadways into their lives by showing people love. And there are a thousand different ways you can do that. You want to know the big, one of the things that helps people the most anymore? If somebody would just listen to them. Just listen to them. You know why we don't? Because we're always on our phone. You ever walked into a restaurant now these days? 90% of the people in there are on their phone. Their head buried in a screen. Nobody's listening. We're talking a lot. We're shouting a lot. We're pounding our fists a lot, but nobody's listening. People need to know. There's one country where they set up grandma on a bench. It was a, it was a, I can't remember the country now, uh, um, but it was, they were having a lot of suicide among teenagers and didn't know what to do about it. They tried a lot of different things, and so finally somebody came with this idea, you know what, we're going to put park benches throughout the, the city, and we're going to set grandma on the bench and just let her listen to kids. And that's exactly what they did, and the suicide rate plummeted because somebody took the time to listen to them. So... I gave him you a dime, and there's a story about Bart Starr. How many of you know who Bart Starr was? All right, Bart Starr was with the Green Bay Packers back in 1965, uh, that era. So, you know, if you're as old as I am, uh, you, you, you probably remember that. And so, so Bart Starr uh, had a son who's named Bart Jr. <laughs> Authentic, right? <laughs> Creative. And Bart Jr. was in junior high school, and... And, and Bart Sr. wanted to encourage his son, and so every time he brought home a, a good report card or a, a paper that was, you know, admirable or whatever, 
he would always take the time and he would write a note to his son on the bottom of that, that report card or the bottom of that paper. Hey, Bart, I'm really proud of you. Uh, I appreciate all the hard work you've put into this. It shows. I, I want you to know I love you and I'm encouraging you just to keep on, you know, doing the best that you can. And then he would always scotch tape a dime to that paper or to that report card. Well, later on in Bart Starr's career, he was moved off to the St. Louis Cardinals. And in one of the games against, in one of the games, one of his first games with the Cardinals, uh, I don't remember who they played, but he did, Bart Starr did horrible. Three interceptions, I mean, literally lost the game for them. You know, they fought hard, but, you know, he just, interception after interception, felt horrible about himself. He was still living in Green Bay at the time, boarded a plane in St. Louis, flew back to Green Bay, walked into his bedroom. He felt horrible about himself. You know, this was a bad decision. I shouldn't have made this this move, and on and on, you know, how your mind goes to the negative. And then he, he went over to his dresser and threw his wallet on the dresser, and he noticed a note there from his son. Hey, Dad, I watched you play football today. I just want you to know you played a great game. You did your best. You tried your hardest. I'm proud of you. And Scotch taped the dime to that note. So I give you this dime to, as a reminder to you that um, I love you. I believe in you. I want to encourage you. Every week I want to encourage you. I want to lift you up. In any way that I can, I believe that God has some great days in front of us. And I just want you to know that you, all of you, are going to be a vital, vital part of what the Lord's going to do here. And so you pick up that dime. You are a 10. You don't let Satan tell you anything less. You are a 10. So let God use you. Open up your heart. Open up your life. Take the scary step of faith and see what the Lord will do. Let's bow our heads.